Welcome to episode 159 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Today I'm over in the UK and Jason is still in Los Angeles as usual. How are you doing, Jason? Good. How about yourself? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, our internet connectivity is not that great today. This is the uh, second time we're starting, so let's hope it works. Yeah, well, at least we'll, uh, we can try to stitch together like 15 individual conversations. Right. So we have a shout out today, a $10 donation to Texting. And this shout-out is actually a Secret Santa donation. So the shout-out is to Norman Smith. Have a very Merry Christmas from Jimmy Doki. You know, I have something from a while back. This is like a couple weeks old maybe, but I, I never had a chance to bring it up. Do you know that uh, little startup that Jason Cohen um, founded called uh, WP Engine? That's the Yeah, his WordPress engine. So his, his thesis was that... Um, Businesses would like a, a rock-solid installation of WordPress, something that was really easy to get going and something that was just especially optimized for WordPress and would be very, very rock-solid. Right. They could scale really well and, and, and um, yeah, that it wouldn't have the kind of problems that you tend to run into when you have a smaller hosting environments. So anyway, um, they raised $1.2 million in funding from you know a bunch of big shots silverton partners was one of the uh, i guess the vcs but angels like eric reese you know mr lean startup mm, yeah loic lemur of le web you know him now are all the uh, is everyone who's invested are they public i mean is, yeah is i'm, it I'm sitting on this is an article on TechCrunch. oh yeah so you know who loic lemur is you've heard of le web haven't you uh, yes, and I know that our own uh, Rob Walling invested in it. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> great. You killed the punchline. That's what I was. Oh, sorry. Oh, so yeah, well, Dharma Shah and uh, there's another one um, who I think Dharma Shah is like what on startups. I think is his blog. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Rob Walling. I was like, I was reading this. And I'm like, Rob's a player. Look at this. You were, you yeah, know? no, he is. I mean, he like he like you've always said, he's the Warren Buffett of of micropreneurship. <laughs> He's got like a nickel or dime and, you know, 50 different startups. Well, no, y- you know, I-, I actually, I emailed him about it and congratulated him on it because I thought it was pretty, pretty cool. I mean, I think this is pretty much a sure thing that he's going to see some kind of financial return on it. I mean, it may, may or not be a gigantic uh, financial success um, in terms of for the startup and, uh, as a whole, but it'll probably do pretty well. Um, How long does it take to see money from, from that kind of investment? Well, it really depends. I mean, you know, I don't know. Sometimes these things can get, can, they can flip something like this. Like it could end up being bought by um, Automatic. I mean, Automatic put money into it. I mean, that's the one started by, um, oh, what's the guy's name? The WordPress founder? Matt Mullenweg. Matt Mullenweg, right. So I don't know, just, just the kind of thing that Automatic could turn around and buy. Hmm. Right. Because um, I, I mean, I, I think they invested as sort of a, you know, they, they would call it like a strategic investment. So automatic isn't specifically geared towards, uh, you know, what WP Engine's market is—the real high-end customer. Yeah. So by investing in a in a high-end customer, a high-end offering like WP Engine, it kind of gives them this sort of um, other 
avenue to reach those customers. And if, if it's big enough, I mean, who knows? They might just turn around and say, okay, we'll just buy you. Because I think Automatic's pretty successful, right? Yeah. You know, I w- I've always been meaning to ask Matt Mullenweg to come on the show and, and talk the story because, uh, of course, EasySQL, which was the, the database abstraction layer that I wrote, is used by WordPress. Well, yeah, we should, yeah, you should give him a, give him a shout, see if you can get him, get him on. That'd be cool. I yeah. mean, when he made you the offer to come on, I mean, how, how big a deal was WordPress at that time? When who, sorry, when what? Well, when, when Matt Mullenweg told you that he'd come on the show. Well, he, he said he would come on something else. Like, so before, before texting, I had an, an idea of another podcast where I was just going to interview people myself and he said he'd come on that, but then actually decided that he wouldn't come on that because that was about business success. Like I, I didn't quite understand how I was going to phrase it. It was more like, I think I called it like the internet millionaires podcast or something like that. That was the approach I was taking. And obviously it was completely wrong. So he kind of initially agreed, but then he was like, mm, I'm not so sure that that is the right thing to do because I don't want to be associated with being an internet millionaire or something like that. It, and, sounds, a little, it sounds a little cheesy. Yeah, it sounds a little cheesy. And really I should have, I should have been thinking that, you know, thinking correctly about it. But ultimately that's what people want, but it's just, you don't want to label it. Let's pretend, let's pretend that it's not really about being a millionaire. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, it's only partially about being financially successful. It's partially about, you know, doing something that you think is really important or really interesting, I guess. So, well, you know, it's, it's kind of that balance. It's not yeah. just about the money. And anytime anything is just about the money, it kind of loses its soul and becomes kind of sleazy. Yeah. Or can become sleazy. I don't know. A lot of our, a lot of the world operates on things that are not about people, you know, realizing their, uh, their dream and, 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 you know, or following their passion. It's about solving a problem and getting paid for it. You know, I mean, people don't, you know, necessarily, you know, build homes, you know, construction companies aren't doing it for the passion of building homes. A lot they're doing mm-hmm. it because it's a, you know, make money that way, you know, and a million other invent endeavors. So, but, um, at least in, in our world, our tech world, um, you have to kind of, uh, marry it with, uh, the, uh, the passion for the, 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 the venture itself. Well, so do you think Jason Cohen has a real passion to make rock solid WordPress backend? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it's like a lot of things. I mean, I think people overdo the whole passion um, thing. I think a lot of these, a lot of these companies are interesting. I mean, they're fun. They're fun and they're interesting for a while. You know, it's not like he he's been wanting to build a WordPress hosting service since he was twelve, <laughs> right? No, right? But to expect anyone to 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 feel that way is kind of silly. I think people go over the top on it, like I'm passionate about this or I'm passionate about that. It's like, well. It's an interesting problem. It could be an interesting thing to do for a while, you know, and that's fine. I mean, that's enough. It doesn't have to be something that you've been dreaming of, like wanting to be an astronaut or something since you were a little kid. Um, so, but does Jason Cohen, does he find it to be an interesting problem? Does he think that it could be a useful service? Does he think that he could solve real problems with it? Yeah, I think the answer to, the, to all those questions is yes. And, and that's more than enough. Um, and then ultimately, does he think that it could be a profitable enterprise? And I think, again, the answer is yes. So Right. Cool. But um, I think betting on something like this, and, you know, at least from Rob Walling's perspective, is smart because, I, um, you know, I, Jason Cohen obviously knows a fair amount about how to do web startups. Right. 
mean, he not only did his Smart Bear company work out, but he he's invested in a ton of them through what's Capital Factory. I think is his little accelerator yeah. that he's part of. Is it Capital Factory? I think so. Yeah, it's down based out of like Austin or something. And he, you know, he does a Smart Bear podcast. And he he's a smart guy. He knows what he's, or he's a smart bear, I guess. <laughs> um, he knows what he's talking about, and I think he has as good a shot as any anyone at, at making something that's successful. And it seems to be like it's not a real stretch. This market isn't a real sweat stretch in terms of like having to raise a ton of money and build a huge customer base and then figure out a profit a profit, you know, a way to be profitable. I mean, you, you know, could you could kind of just expend, extend it to, I guess, any popular open source platform. Then, right? So, the next, you know, he he could release a sugar CRM one next or whatever. Just find any any piece of software like Drupal, for example. You could. Um, the good thing about WordPress probably is that it's so widely used. Yeah, and so many businesses depend on having. Having a uh, you know a a blog or a website that is built on WordPress, that's probably easier to build a market on that than something like Drupal, which I think is you know a little more niche in comparison. I'm not really sure what the problem is. I mean, like what problem it's actually solving? Because for example, with us, that you know, there's been a few times where we've been hit by Hacker News or whatever and got fifty thousand views in a day or something like that. It's it's never really particularly affected us. You know, it's always worked on our small servers or whatever. Are you talking about Texing's podcast? Uh, yeah, well, Texing, Texing, and also my personal one. Yeah, so both of those. Did did JustinVincent.com stay up when it got the big... Um, yeah, the, entre- the Entreporn one, which had, you know, 700 points on Hacker News. I mean, there was never any issue with that at all. And it's running on what? Um, It's running on... I think it's just like a... Uh, United Hosting, like a, just a kind of bog standard control panel server. There's like no twelve dollars kind of, a month kind of thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. It works fine, huh? Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's since I don't have that problem, it's hard for me to you know understand what the you know what the demand is there. But apparently, there's demand. I, I remember. I don't know if it was he was being interviewed or where I heard, or, or where he talked about it, but I guess I think he he sort of either tweeted or wrote a blog post about. What he wanted to do, and then a, and a bunch of people got back to him really quickly and said, "Yeah, we would love that. We would we would totally pay for that." Hmm. So, yeah, I think he found out pretty quickly that there were a number of people who had this problem that were interested in paying for that kind of solution. So, you know, that's a that's a great business to start if you can if you can just kind of you know broadcast that you're thinking of doing something and get a bunch of people to tell you, "Yeah, they'd write you a check right now." You know, go for it. <laughs> Not yeah. a lot of not a lot of uncertainty, at least in the market there. I mean, there's always a little bit, I guess, in the sense that people say they're going to pay for something, and then when it comes to writing a check, it's a different story. Yeah. Because especially if you're talking to people who are your friends or people at least you're friendly with, they don't want to be rude, and people want to be supportive and positive, and you're like, oh, I'm going to do X. And like, oh, it sounds great, man, cool. I could, you know, maybe I could use that. But that's totally different than someone you know, actually forking over the cash. That's why it's a good idea if you can. I mean, you know, not a lot of, not all businesses are really geared towards doing this kind of thing, but if you get people to pay, put like a deposit down towards your first month or three months of service or something like that, and that you'll get your turn it if you never launch, but if you launch, you'll, you know. Well, cash it almost in. goes for us to say, you know, how about Kickstarter? Use that. Just get it up there and actually just start taking money um, from people who just think it's a great idea and want to give you some money to get it off the ground. 
Now, Kickstarter doesn't work in terms of um, non. It's only for nonprofit things, right? No, or no, is- not at all. No, you you could start a business with Kickstarter. I mean, Kickstarter works for just any kind of uh, raising money, and it it does work for for business. And so, you know, a lot of people will use Kickstarter and basically say, okay, I'm going to write this book, or I'm going to record this album, or I'm going to do this piece of software, and you're kind of paying up front for it. You know. Well, why are we seeing more of that? More of that, I wonder. I don't know. Yeah, like it, it seems like maybe because it's not really highlighted. It's not there. It, it's not the what people think of as their as the core model for it. But yeah, but hey, if you could do that, that seems like a really good idea. Um, pre-sell it. Yeah, pre-sell it. Right. I mean, because there's no risk if if people actually would pay for it and they'll get their money back if it never launches. Then what's the risk? Well, you see, you're not going to get your money back. Right on kick anyway with Kickstarter, it's a, it's a donation. So pre-selling well, donation, goes. If you, okay, Kickstarter works, doesn't it? It doesn't work in the sense that uh, you have like amount that you want to raise, say like ten thousand dollars, and if you don't yeah. raise that amount of money, everybody gets their money back. Um, I they held an escrow. That's how Kickstarter. We're Indiegogo, which is what we use for donations uh, for the podcast. Um, there's no like limit. There's none of that. It's like if you donate fifty dollars. The show gets fifty dollars. Is that right? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I know I didn't know that. Um, but yeah, well, that's how Kickstarter works. But that's not the same thing to say. Well, you know, you're 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 trying to raise a certain amount, um, versus whether it launched or not. You know, is it be if you had a um, if you had some way that you had like a re- like someone who refereed it and could say, uh, yes, this service launched and is accepting payments. So. Everybody who put in a prepayment is is going to be charged, or their money is going to be bought. That sounds like a good. I mean, just in its own right, a good startup idea. <laughs> yeah, I like yeah. that. I like the way you put that there. Yeah, kind of like a, a, a yeah pre a pre selling a an idea, you know, and it, you, and you could set set the amount right. You could say, well, ha, you have a referee, and and, and then maybe it's you know has to launch within three months or six months or something like that, and. Maybe you could put also other stipulations on it if if you wanted, like a certain amount has to be raised, or these have to be, you know, at least ten or twenty or a hundred other people have to prepay, otherwise it's invalid. You could do things like that. They call that, you know, this this whole thing is called crowdfunding. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And they're talking about doing crowdfunding in ter- for like even um, funding for funding startups. Yeah. For like share, not for like not for. Not as a prepayment for the service, but actually for paying for you know. You you get a little piece of the company, but the there's there. I mean, there are securities laws. I think Securities yeah. Act, like what nineteen thirty four, whatever it is that you know requires people to have to be accredited investors to invest in non-public companies. So you have to to be accredited means you have to have million dollars net worth or make over two hundred thousand dollars for I think either two or three years in a row. So um, we got quite a few emails and messages and twi- tweets and uh, people contacting, contacting us saying we need to get any food out the door. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, a lot of it had to do based on um, the, latest, the most recent episode of uh, the Stack Exchange podcast with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood. Yeah. So I actually was listening to it like the day it came out before even we, before any of those emails were sent and about 27 minutes in they're well they're interviewing a guy named Brent uh, Ozar who's a um 
he's a sort of a high-end uh, my C, uh, no, a SQL Server consultant. He's yeah. a Microsoft MVP. And Jeff and Joel brought him in to help them optimize and fine-tune their, uh, their database strategy. Because they're a whole Microsoft. They're built on a Microsoft stack. And 27, it was roughly 27 minutes in, he starts talking about how he wishes there was some way that could facilitate micro-consulting. So yeah. Like, uh, and for three hours or something. Yeah, yeah and, and as, soon as, as soon as I heard that, like, my heart skipped a beat. I'm like, is this what they're going to do? <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, right. Yeah, no, it, it freaks you out a little bit when you, hear, when you hear other people talking about the idea independently of, you know, you're offering and 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 the other thing he said was he's like you know because sometimes you just want to go to the the guy yeah who's expert like you just want to get it done with just go to the guy who know really knows it you know work with them for you know a few hours and be done with it but jeff atwood wasn't sold on it he he was like well you know i'm not sure how big because he didn't quite understand it he was thinking he started equating it to like uh small projects like those micro projects that you see Unlike Forest and other places where you can post a project and I'll pay somebody, you know, $500 if they build this for me or something. Yeah. He didn't quite under, he, 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 was, he wasn't quite understanding what, he, what uh, Brent meant. And the other thing he said, well, people who are really experts usually have um, enough of an audience, enough of a following that they can get all the consulting work they want, which is patently false. I, I think he's... He's seeing it from his perspective because he has 100,000 people reading Coding Horror. Right. And he doesn't understand that the vast majority of experts in, in any particular field, they do not have an audience of tens of thousands of Twitter followers or blog well, they, readers. Right? They still Even Brent make- talked about it in the discussion. He said, he said, you know, there's all these experts that are as good or better than me who, you know, who still have a hard time finding work. Right. But it, I mean, it, they may even that, not have a hard time finding work, but still finding lots of different clients of little bits of work isn't going to be easy for anyone, to be honest, unless there's some kind of marketplace. No, it's really, it's, yeah, that's, that's a whole different problem. And, and right, it's, it's, it's one thing to find, to go from contract to contract, you know, you know, a three month contract to a six month contract to two, you know, you know, whatever, two contracts at the same time. But it's another thing entirely to say, you know, I, I work with anywhere from two to four clients in a single day, Yeah, f- you know, five days a week. That isn't something that people can facilitate on their own. But even beyond finding clients, it's the facilitating of the actual transaction. Right. You know, people come, if, if, just because you're an expert and somebody finds you on Twitter and says, oh, I hear you're an expert in uh, SQL Server. I'd love to uh, get your help for a few hours. Well, you know how how does how would Brent know that this person is going to pay the bill and how you know is that whole thing going to be transacted and and everything and it's just just too much a headache and too much back and forth and oh we got to send you uh, you know if it's a company we got to send you this you know information we had to get your social security number and information get emailed to us and here's our IP and contract contract uh, our, our consulting contract that you need to sign and read you know it's just it's too much overhead way too much overhead for anything less than you know, a few weeks or a few months of work. Well, to answer that, no, you know, I don't to, think I don't think Jeff really understood that. Right. Well, to to answer um, some of those people's questions, you know, that who are getting frustrated with us <laughs> about not getting that out the door. I mean, we are so close. We're just really, really getting there at this stage. 
Um, and we hope to have something within the next couple of weeks. We do. At least the very first. Yeah, it's, it's getting close. It's, uh, it's, it's frustrating because I, 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 I worked on it for, let's see, so I was just in Vegas. So it's Monday today, and from Wednesday through uh, Sunday, we were visiting um, my wife's parents yeah. in Vegas. Yeah. And uh, I just brought my computer and basically worked on any food the whole time. Over the, over the whole know. of Thanksgiving, right? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's, you know, there's only so much time that you can just sit there and eat turkey and watch football, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, we, like, we went out and played, you know, you know, Colby, my, my Colby got a new set of golf, a set of his first set of golf clubs. We went and played golf and we went and played basketball and rode bikes. And I did all that stuff for the kids. But, you know, that's in spurts, right? You do this for an hour, you do that for an hour. There's a lot of time where people are just kind of like hanging out. Yeah. And so I've just, I had my, just in the, in the dining room, which is just sitting right off the kitchen. I had my, my whole setup there. So I was just cranking on any food the whole time. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it just takes time, man. Building stuff takes time. So where, where, where you know, are we at now? These weekend a little. So, um, at least, so what I've, well, one thing I want to say is I had to rework some things that we had mocked up because mm. it didn't make sense. They didn't really work um, in terms of like defining your expertise and your profile and having those in separate kind of pages. And I don't know, there's a bunch of things that just didn't work out very well. Okay. And um, so I had to kind of rework a lot of that stuff, but that stuff is all pretty much working now. Um so, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's still some things to do um, with uh, session management. So, like, if, let's say that you set a client, you know, you say you're an expert and you're looking at your dashboard and you're looking at, a, a, you know, you have two or three sessions that are sort of, you know, in progress or rather they're going to be set up soon. They've been set up and you, you want to go in later and change some aspect or cancel them because you need to cancel for one reason or maybe change a time or something like that. I mean, there's some of those things need to be sort of sorted out a little bit, but um, I don't know. It's getting pretty close. But of so, course we've been saying that for a while. So. so when do you want me to do my next round of testing on it? Well, I don't know. Like I said, I'll, I will email you as soon as I'm ready for that. I mean, I want to get, all these pieces just kind of working. Oh um, yeah, you, you said I'll, like yeah. you said um, it's it, this is a push situation, not a pull situation. <laughs> so you're it's gonna event. it's event driven. Yeah. You know, yeah, right, it's right. Ready? Quit ask. <laughs> so I'll turn to ask you. So what's the task? You, so your one of your three big tasks or four tasks. One was building the scheduler. Yeah. One was researching and uh, sorting out the entire payment process um and the other two were uh getting the legal stuff like at least getting some high level or meta work done on the legal documents that we need yeah all the all the points we need to hit and the fourth was coming with a preliminary database of a bunch of experts who we should invite to uh, to be on the service to seed it with so, so number that, one yeah. um the scheduler i think i've completed that certainly good enough for the first pass that's yeah, the so scheduler that budget. A, yeah that's, that's a couple weeks ago so what have you done since that so then what was number two number two was oh, cool. oh yeah the payment stuff right so i've done a lot of research and looking into the payment stuff and basically come up with our first pass solution on that 
which is going to be it's funny because even though i had a lot of hardcore looking into it um and found a lot of complex options ultimately we've decided to go with something very simple which is just to use stripe to pull money into our account and we're going to pay people with checks that's going to be our out the, out the starting gate okay solution. You're, you're talking about the payments of not the legal not the yeah, legal document. Yeah, that's the payment stuff so the legal stuff um i've got all of the the legal files for odesk and for elance and a few other providers and i sat down on the plane and started to go through them and break them out basically my next task was to break it out into non-legal speak and just look at all the bullet points to bullet to re-bullet point that and distill it and I started on the plane, and then I just fell asleep. <laughs> yeah, I had a feeling about that. You're like, oh, I'm gonna do it all on the plane. I'm like, all right. yeah. So that, so that's my next, my next task. Um, I, I have some ideas on um, how to get hold of the the, the experts, uh, and that's something that we'll be talking about on another show in the future. Right. So, um, yeah. Well, that would be interesting when you follow up on that. When you, I'd like to, I, what I'd like to do, maybe on the, maybe on the next show, if you have a list of like the. 10 or 20 or whatever they're like um bullet points yeah um we'll go over each one or at least the not each one that might be kind of not too fun but maybe go over like a handful of the most interesting ones sure you know at least your understanding of them and you know i wonder if we could do sort of like a not overly legalese um version you know kind of like you remember when google came out with their sec their s1 filing i think it's called yeah and they and it and it wasn't this sort of really dry uh, language. It was sort of their Google speak. Google speak. Yeah, it was really funny, and it really freaked a lot of a lot of people out who were in that in that industry because they're like, "What are they doing?" And that's but it actually explained in much clearer terms what it is that they were they were trying to do, what the business was about, what the risks were. You know, it fulfilled the purpose of the S one better. Now, I'm not necessarily saying we have to do exactly that, but I just wonder, you know, at least for our stage, if we could come up with something that was simple and clear spoken and covered our bases as best as we understand it, um, if that would be sufficient for, say, the first three to six months. I think I'm pretty sure it would. So I, I will try and do something for our next show next week. I'll get something ready for then. Um, okay, cool. Well, I think that's, that's pretty much, um, our, our update on any food for this week. Um, yeah, you know, I, I have an, I have sort of a follow-up topic. Okay, go for it. Um, you know, this might be a little controversial, but you know, especially with you, <laughs> Uh oh, I want to bring it up anyway. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that about working on any food that has been a little, um, I don't know if it's, I don't know what we're talking about. It's frustrating, time consuming, is that we mocked a bunch of stuff up. And it turns out a lot of our designs, our mockups were based on thoughts or assumptions that we had, which were, which were inaccurate, weren't right. right. And we sort of sorted those things out, some of those assumptions out. We probably sorted maybe a third of them out within a week or two after. Uh, after that, we were done with the mockups, or maybe and something like that, and then in the process of building, and I would periodically say, "Hey, you know what, Justin? You know how we said X, Y, and Z were going to happen? Well, that doesn't make any sense at all." And you were <laughs> like, oh, "Yeah, I guess not, right?" And that happened. That's happened a, a number of times where, you know, and I'm not, and I'm not saying that the mockups didn't give us some framework from which to um, work from, but. 
a lot of the things we did were just wrong. And, and in some ways, I feel like it kind of like wasted, I don't know if I wasted the time, but led me the wrong direction because I keep looking at this. I'm like, this is just not right. And then I build stuff based on it kind of without thinking too deeply about it. And then when I'm trying to tie it all together, I'm realizing this stuff doesn't work. It doesn't work nearly as well as it should or as more confusing as it should be or whatever. And I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I, so basically what I'm saying is doing mock-ups and then writing code are, is a little, has a little bit of that waterfall methodology to, from my perspective. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't, I don't think that it's controversial at all. I think it's, uh, it's a good thing to talk about. And um, I mean, one thing that we didn't do with the mock-ups, I mean, we just, we just did a first pass. We didn't iterate. We didn't, we didn't really, really think about them. We didn't turn them into a clickable model. Like when you turn something into a clickable model, I'm pretty sure we would have come up against some of the issues that you came up against when you actually coded it. So yes, we didn't. Think, yeah, we didn't I take think that extra from stage. a learning perspective. Well, okay. Well, I, I guess like I'm thinking like what would I do differently? Yeah. For the you know first thing the first lessons. I mean I'm sure we're going to come up with about 20 lessons in six months from now. Things that we'd do differently. Yeah. The first thing that I would do differently next time is I would never I would never try and do designs based on the mock-ups. You don't know nearly enough about uh, about what you're building just when you have mock-ups. Yeah, well, so, so mock-ups aren't supposed to be the way that you're going to design it anyway. They're, they're just supposed to be like the kind of bare minimum of the functionality of what, right. of what the product's going to be. Yeah, so that, that was a mistake we made. I think it was just sort of like a in, in, in the in the vein of just sort of or in the uh, spirit of moving fast, we're like and I and I, I think it was something that I pushed more than you, which is like, hey, let's get the mock-up design and then we'll start building it and then we'll just like get a designer start designing off the mock-ups and then we'll kind of meet in the middle. Well, it, funny because we had the experience with mock-ups quite a few times where, like, we had put some yellow shading behind something or we had spelt a word wrong or whatever and you would always say okay you know i would i would move to the next mock-up and you go no 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 you that that bit's not right get that bit right so that it <laughs> to, to kind of create this consistency to make sure everything was spelled correctly and i and i was like well but w- these are mock-ups anyway this is you know not going to ever mean anything other than just here's a very very rough sketch of something that we may may or may not do in the future Right. I mean, you know, part of that is my personality that I'm a little perfectionist, so a little, little misspellings <laughs> of things bother me. Right. <laughs> so that's probably more an idios- a character, an idiosyncrasy of my of my personality. But you know, but it also could be that you've used mockups more, so you think of them as more malleable and um, pre- preliminary, and I'm thinking of, thinking of them more as blueprints. Right, and maybe also you're a little bit more like kind of Steve Jobs, where you know, he's, he cares about what the computer looks like inside. Right? I do. I'm very, I'm, I'm very <laughs> anal about things. I'm very <laughs> anal about everything. So that's true. And, um, yeah. So Which anyway, is good. I, you know, I that's just, not a bad thing. I just, you know, that's just, you know, that, that's why a lot of things that I do are, you know, the way I write code, the way I work with people are meant to sort of manage my, my own personality quirks. <laughs> but do you think you know? that that stops you from, um, kind of releasing stuff and i mean do you like how how much lead time do you think that that level of perfectionism puts on the release date i don't know it's hard to say i mean you know like it, it would be easy to make that that sounds like a great generalization to make 
Right. But I don't know if that's necessarily the case here because some stuff just it's not it's just isn't completely working, you know. So I, I you know, but could you say yeah? I'm sure it. Let's say it may it makes a fifty percent premium. My perfectionism puts a fifty percent premium or additional time. Yeah, you know on. Uh, uh, on what could be released earlier, that might be true. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's twenty percent. I, 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 it's hard. For, it's hard to say. And, um, but I, I guess I feel like um, I, I don't want stuff to break. I want stuff to be basically right. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be gorgeous. But it just can't be broken. Yeah. And it just, it just, I just don't want it to be fundamentally wrong. Because if you show something that's just wrong. And you know it's wrong, and they don't like it. It's like, or is it because they don't like the concept, or is it because it's just wrong? It's just wrong, right? I mean, it's, yeah. You know, uh, what what are what are they reacting to? So, um, I, I think, so I think if I did it, oh, if we did this uh, uh, over, we did another project or whatever, I'd say the first thing was like, you know, push design until after the point that you have a working beta. Yeah. I get a working beta, and then at that point, I'd go and and start talking about design, about logos, and everything else. I wouldn't even do the logo, wouldn't do the color scheme, wouldn't do any of that. Um, I would get like a working or private beta mm-hmm. at that point. Maybe you can get the logo. You can get the logo if or first if you want, but nothing beyond the logo. I I, I think. Yeah, the, I could totally agree. Yeah, the second thing, and 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 I'll take the blame for that because I I thought that, um, I just thought we were. I thought the mock-ups were closer to what we'd imagined than, than they actually were. The second thing is I would, I would maybe not try and mock up the whole thing mm-hmm. first. I would mock up a, a module of the site and then build it. Oh, okay. So basically build it chunk by chunk, area by area. Yeah, kind of like, like how I normally code. I just kind of go module by module, get something simple, always have something working. And if you, if, you know, if you're going to do mock, if you're going to mock stuff up, let's just mock up that module and then build it and make sure it all makes sense. And then mock up the next, don't mock up the whole damn thing. And cause you spend all this time kind of in fantasy land, imagining all this stuff and drawing all this stuff. And a lot of that stuff can be pushed off to later to where you, you know more. And this is something that's espoused by 37 singles, which is don't make big decisions, make small decisions, build the simplest stuff first, that kind of thing. Go mm-hmm. from the start from the center of the product and yeah. build out, you but know, maybe, so, but maybe having like a, maybe, I mean, don't you think there's something to be said for having like a general, even like some fuzzy vision of the entirety so that as you're touching each different section, each different module, you have some idea of the potentials for that, you know, so that it could make you help you make better design decisions? I, you know, I, I mean, that's a reasonable argument. I mean, I, you know, and that's, I, that's why, you know, we did it. Um, in retrospect, I'm not sure it helped that much. And I think it might have hindered things a little bit because it kind of stri- it, it when you have things you know it's like when you write things down it makes them seem more real than if you just talk about them right and if you draw pictures of them you create mockups it seem more they're more meaningful than if you and I just had a conversation about it or or an email well, about it. so I felt like okay we have these designs I'm supposed to do something basically like this but as I go along I realize some of the stuff is wrong but I'm still operating within this this sort of framework that was incorrect and it just felt like. Uh, you know, well, of course, the ideal scenario would have been to iterate the mock-ups with actual customers, so that we would have then got some. We would have, you know, 
turn those mockups into clickable mockups and get those in front of customers. So we, we had done no coding whatsoever and we had people experiencing the journeys of the site. And then we may have got some of that feedback and some of that stuff coming back. Yeah, well, that's, I guess so. that's one that way anyway. Yeah. So used, I guess the answer is use mockups the way they're meant to be used. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so anyway. Um, okay, cool. So have you got any more um, hacking news stuff or interesting links? Sure. So uh, I got, uh, did you read the one about man, uh, man-made super flu could kill half of humanity? Yeah, I did. And it was like, whoa, that's something straight out of uh, 24. Yeah, so this guy, uh, his name's Ron Fouchier, who's a, um, he's at Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam. Um, so I guess his lab, they created, they took the, um, the uh, was it the... Uh, H1, 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 and they evolved it by having it go back and forth between they used ferrets as their sort of lab lab animals and by transmitting it from one ferret to another because I guess ferrets have an immune system that's not too different from, from ours that within I guess there were five genes and with the, that, that mutated in the process of moving from host to host and they got it so it was it, was, it, it could be contracted through uh, it was airborne Kind of like the normal flu. Like, my my first city. question is why? Why even bother? Like, what, what? well, it, it's it's almost like the idea that they have is that in the real world, these viruses can mutate on their own, and, and as they found, it was only it was only like five steps away from that anyway. And so, by doing it in the lab, then they can they can they can figure out what it's going to be like, and then they can start working on potential uh, cures for it. Right. Yeah, but doesn't isn't that kind of aligned with <laughs> a business practice of saying, okay, now we can work on the cures for it and we can release it and then we can basically put the cure out there and make a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, this guy's like at a, uh, I don't, this this isn't a corporate thing. I think I think what's what it's more motivating it is just scientific curiosity and the desire to publish because he he's working with some guy who's at. Uh, I think it was like it was like uh, somewhere in in Japan, like University of Tokyo or something, and they working along with it, and they're both really pushing hard to be able to publish the results. But the um, I think it's called the U.S. National Security Advisory Board uh, for uh, biosecurity. Uh, it's called the NSABB is pushing hard against it because they're like you know, it's a really bad idea to take something. Let's see, here's a quote. It was great. He goes, he goes, uh, this is the guy who's the chair. Of the U, U, of the NSABB, and he says, "I yeah. can't think of another pathogenic organism organism that is as scary as this one." Um, Paul Keim, a micro, microbial geneticist who has worked on anthrax for many years, told Science Insider, "I don't think anthrax is scary at all compared to this." Yeah, I agree. It's an airborne thing that can kill, uh, you know, half the population of the world. <laughs> That's absolutely here's nuts. Other, yeah, and here's another quote. He goes. He goes, it's just a bad idea for scientists to turn a lethal virus into a lethal and highly contagious virus. And it's a second bad idea for them to publish how they did it so others can copy it, believes Dr. Thomas Inglesby, a bioterrorism expert and director of the Center for Biosecurity of the University of Pittsburgh's Medical Center. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so taking the H5N1 and doing that, it's, 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 you know, like when, 
um, you have these security guys or these hackers will like find some vulnerability website and and the the ethical thing to do is to notify the company and give them you know like uh, six weeks or some period of few months of time to fix the vulnerability before you go public with it. Yeah, right. You don't go public, so so they can have a solution. So okay, we've resolved it, but. This was the hack the guy came with. So the guy yep. can get the credit for being like this really smart guy who found this found this security hole. But the company didn't didn't yeah, uh, but that's great. But the problem is is that under that scenario it's free and easy to get the fix to push out that fix. Whereas with with this scenario, basically a drug company has to distribute it and make a billion dollars. Right. Well, <laughs> I mean the first thing is to to talk about how to make it and get it out there without there being uh, a uh, I don't know what you call it, like an inoculation against it. Yeah, a vaccine. And a cure is really dangerous. Ridiculous. Right? And they don't even they don't even have. I don't think they even have much of a uh, of a cure for it or inoculation. Right. And even if they did, like you said, could they produce it on a mass scale? Mm-hmm. And who would profit from it? You know. I, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a pretty bad idea. That stuff's really scary. Um. Uh, so, so we are in agreement that they should not publish how to make this virus. Yeah. No. They <laughs> okay. Cool. I hope that most people agree with us on that because that's just. I mean, that's that's sort of where you take. Um, you know, I don't know the EFF. Would what 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 stance would they take on it? Like these free these freedom foundations. Um. I don't think the EFF EFF is really concerned with like. Uh, Genetic, you know, bio, medical stuff. Yeah, they're, but just, they're, well, the, but it's it, it's basically the publishing of, of it, information. right? Yeah, freedom of information. Yeah, exactly. Right to publish stuff. I mean, but I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm I'm all for, as you can tell, by the, how, how the positions I've taken on things. I'm all for getting things in the open, and I'm not. I'm I'm very skeptical of any of secrecy in general. I think secrecy is. I think what they say is democracy does it dies behind closed doors. Right. But there are very specific things like, say, you know, the instructions for creating a, um, a global pandemic. There's, there's <laughs> no, <laughs> or for igniting a dirty bomb or something like that, which is probably best being locked behind some big safe somewhere. You right. know, it shouldn't be unless, until they have, at least in terms of the, you know, the medical stuff and until they have like, some inoculation that everybody has anyway, but even but, but even then, it's like, how is everybody going to have it, right? Like, it's not like everybody gets inoculated for the flu, the normal flu. The right? problem with that people. is it sets a precedence, right? So if if you've if you've created one precedent saying under this circumstance, information should not be free, right? Then that means that you you know where where does the of the gradient of like black through to gray through to white, where does that precedent stop? So common sense, I think. I think you have to use common sense. Okay, and, but and everyone's, not, sense, everyone's sense is different. Then. I'm not. A, I'm not a believer in that. All information should be free. I, I think our information wants to be free just because it's easily, you know, copyable. I'm not necessarily taking that posi- extreme of position. What's common uh, sense? Yeah. What's that? What's common sense? I just think you have to go on a case by case basis and say, listen, you know, what advantage is there to having the world know about this, and what's the risk that it's going to turn out really bad, you know, and you have to ask what the risk reward trade off is. And I think the risk reward trade off for releasing the instructions for a pandemic is uh, the, the risk 
is extremely high and the reward is almost zero, except for a few, few, you know, some scientists are going to maybe get some additional funding and some kudos and they're saying for being published in a big journal, you know, that's the reward. And maybe they make some scientific advancement, but, you know, I think if they want to work on viruses and evolve viruses and, and change them, they should be working on viruses that are much less deadly and, uh, you know, are going to cause those kind of problems. Okay. So my, my next link is Jedi Mind Tricks, six, 17 Lesser Known Ways to Persuade People. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was, I was, in fact, I was just watching the, um, I watched one of the, uh, was it the prequels to Star Wars? Yeah. Man, those are bad. Those oh, are the bad. prequels. But even Star Wars in its own right, I mean, the effects are so funny. Well, I, I don't know. The story was good. Star Wars itself was really good. Empire Strikes Back was really good, I thought. Um, but it's, I don't know. I, every time I watch those, those prequels, every time I see even a part of it, I'm just like, oh, God, I feel like. Why do you think of- people get worse? It, like, it's, it's weird. Like, it happens so often that someone does something amazing, you know, on their first try. And then the more that they do it, the worse that they get. <laughs> it's like one hit wonders in music. Well, let's talk about yeah. the music. You have a background in music. What's, what do you think? I, I don't, I, I, I don't understand. Like the same people who created great, great music, great albums, like for example, I don't know, David Bowie. And then as time goes on, they just get less appealing. It's really strange. Do you think, do you think musicians, you know, just let's, let's, let's be specific to music for a second. Since you mm-hmm. have so much background in creating music, do you think they get lazy? Do you, you know, do you think it's more that their fans, everyone's telling them how great they are and how much they love their music that nobody's being honest with them about the quality? I'll tell you what I think it is. Okay, I've asked you the question, but I'm telling you what I'm going to think it is about music. People, when they're younger, they know less. And so because they have less stuff floating around in their head, it's easy for them to hook onto the kind of high quality, hooky, sugary, good stuff of what they're, what they're creating. But as they as they grow older, they learn more and more and more about music and they start learning jazz stuff and blues and sevenths and ninths and all these strange kind of chords and different beats and different stuff. And so then they have a head full of stuff that's just so different to simple, catchy hooks. And so that it's difficult for them to not include some of that other stuff that's a lot more esoteric and advanced in their new stuff. And so I think that's possibly what it is. It's you, you just potentially know more. So know? they will, so the musicians want to challenge themselves, challenge themselves right. by tackling more sophisticated composition. I think so. Yeah. And, and so therefore move more away from, from just simple, easy listening to more like a kind of virtuoso type of experience. I don't know. That's, that's my theory anyway. Yeah, and it's, it's maybe somewhat ego-driven too, you know? He's like, well, i got to top myself. And so rather than keeping it simple, they, they keep getting, they, it kind of, it gets sort of, um, I don't know what the, word, what, the way, what the way is, to, what's the best way to describe it, but they get so in their head, they just get so, they want to get so clever. It's like there's a term, a phrase for that called being too clever by half. Right. You know, you just, you just, you're, you're just getting a little too cute. Just keep it simple and, and just try and make good music. Don't try and make clever music. Well, I mean, Radiohead, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I mean, Radiohead, their, their early stuff was just so good. But then the more they go on, but they don't care. You know, they're, they're really happy with, with what they do these days and what they've done with 
you know later albums but it is kind of it's almost that they say you you have to be a real fan <laughs> right to, <laughs> to like kind of yeah to keep on liking that new stuff you know huh i wonder i wonder i think that probably plays out in a lot of mediums not just music um probably you know like you said films but films are such a um a collaborative effort among not just the sort of the writer or the director but it's also the studios and the people putting the money in and and everybody else. So it's like they don't always have complete control. And you always see these huge fights break out, and they always claim that the studios ruin ruin the movies. And that there probably is more true than it's not. But they also serve as sort of like an anchoring mechanism that it it doesn't allow at least these big budget films. It, it the studios the producers don't allow the directors to go off in La La Land, kind of just stroking their own ego and just being really, really clever. And it it amazes me that any film is ever good or is bad because there's so many different people involved in creating it. There's so like, there's so many different stages that it has to go through so many different people involved and so many places that it can go wrong or right. I'm just amazed that any film is it turns out one way or another. I mean, because, you know, the writing of the script, the acting of the lines, the editing of the movie, the the colouring of the movie, the music that gets laid on top, like, how the hell does it all come together and create something? Just, you know? Yeah, well, like, you know, I guess you have a few people at the top kind of ushering it in and pulling it all together, but, you know, a lot of times it doesn't. I mean, most movies kind of suck. Well, that that's what I mean. I'm like... I, it, it seems to me like it's just a flip, you know, like a toy cost. Like, is this going to be an amazing movie or is it not? It's just like, okay, if, every, if, if all the ducks are lined up in this kind of ridiculously rare situation, then it's going to be an amazing movie. What would be interesting is saying, okay, looking at the screenplay itself, how many screenplays that were really good turn out to be kind of mediocre or poor movies? You know, because I think most of the bad movies you've read the screenplays, itself were pretty bad themselves. Like the problems were structural from the start with the characters and the plot just was not a great screenplay. And so it didn't matter what you did. No, there's only so much that the actors could do and the, and the set designers and the, in the uh, musicians and everybody else, there's only so much they could do because the story itself was just kind of had problems. Right. But then, but you've, then you've got the editing, right? So the editing plays such a massive part of, what the movie ends up being like, you know, it you does. Can you can definitely so many different ways. Movie in the editing room, but you know, there's only the footage is shot mostly based off of the screenplay. Well, there, and- there you go. You've got you've got footage, right? So you've got you've got the direction and the footage. So a director can choose to do a long shot or a close shot or a moving shot. I mean, it's, do you know what I'm? There's so many variables. It's yeah, unbelievable. I, I agree. I, I I guess I believe that the story. It's. I think it's hard to ruin a bad story but it's hard to make a bad story good. <laughs> I think most of it has, it comes down to the story itself, the screen, right. you know, which of course is the screenplay. And I think that it would be interesting to find out how many great screenplays just got ruined in the, in the filmmaking process. I mean, I think you could throw out all the movies that were had poor screenplays and just in terms of your randomness theory mm. and say, let's, let's take, you know, 20 great screenplays that people read and see which one of those turned out to be bad movies. Yeah, it'd be a nice, uh, like a nice statistical study. But I was talking to this, um, this guy who's a, uh, he's a, he's had a long career as a screenwriter in, in television mostly. 
Yeah. And I asked him about like, cause we, every time I see him at one of these, um, these kind of uh, junior league parties that you know, my wife is, my wife is in, in the junior league, which is like the women's volunteer organization. Mm-hmm. And they have like these sort of gala events a couple of times a year, right? You dress up and you know, whatever. So I go and I'll see him once or twice a year and I'm like, all right, you know, what's let's, let's talk screenplays. What about this TV show? Or what about that TV show? And I love getting his thoughts, you know, um, his name's, yeah, Bill. So I'll be, Bill, what's, you know, you know, what's, uh, what are your thoughts? And so, you know, we'll go on and on about different TV shows. And from a writer's perspective, it's interesting to hear his thoughts. He's, cause I, one time I asked him, I go, well, it seems to me that a lot of these shows suck, but the way that reason they suck is because they're making, they're making things, they're making poor decisions that are, they're almost obvious to anybody. They should be obvious. The characters are flat. The storyline is too obvious The you know, what, whatever it is. And I said, do you think, I mean, why, we, why are these TV shows getting greenlit? I mean, why are, why are, I mean, why are they bad? I mean, can't, can't professional writers see that there are problems in these, you know, in these, um, in these TV series before they even start? And he's like, yeah, you know, usually it's the, it's the, from his perspective, he said it was, yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the studios that ruin it. You know, he's like, if you just left the writers themselves do the shows and, and, and call the shots, they'd be great shows. But I wonder about that because you, you could fall into the same trap of what you're talking about musicians. Like they keep trying to get more and more, clever with their screenplays to the point that nobody understands what the hell they're even trying to do. Well, and I mean, another thing is, even if you end up with something amazing, it can just go absolutely nowhere. Like Stargate Universe, you know, or so many other, so many films that become cult films but never have any commercial success. Yeah, well, anyway, let's, so we get back to the, uh, the reason I brought this whole thing up was this um, Jedi Mind Tricks, 17 Lesser Known Ways to Persuade People. Okay, you're going to go through all 17? No, absolutely not. Okay, bring it, bring it just. <laughs> but bring actually, it, I'm going to let you. The best. Is you're better at you're better at reading. All right. Okay. So I'll 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 got a few. I'll just read the title, right? And then you can uh, talk us through it very quick. No, and no. I'll... You read the you read the title and then like the little intro thing. Okay. Then we'll chat about it. Let's because there's a couple that are good ones. Just pick well, them. I'll up. try and find something that looks interesting that interests me. Um. Swearing can help influence an audience. I knew you were going to pick that one. <laughs> Light swearing, that is. Go overhead and you'll lose all credibility. Go overboard, rather, and you'll lose all credibility. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and in fact, you know, this is typified the absolute most by um, Live Aid, when Bob Geldof said, Give us some fucking money. Right, right. Yeah, I, th- I think um, it makes people seem real. You know, if they let their let their guard down a little bit, I think it. Yeah, yeah, you have to be very careful because if you overdo it, you seem vulgar and sort of presumptuous about the relationship. Mm-hmm. If you're met anybody who you know, in, in sort of like a professional context, and they just start dropping f bombs, and it just it's really off putting. You're like, whoa, what's you know, what's going on here? This guy mm-hmm. is. You feel like there's almost something wrong with him. But. You also don't know how how religious or puritanical they might be. Well, you're talking about if you're the one swearing? Yeah, if you're the one swearing and you're you're trying to convince someone of something and you're using swear words, it's a bit of a risk because they may be very offended by them. Yeah, I think you want to be careful. But I mean, obviously, you always have to know your audience. 
who you're talking to, whether you're speaking in a formal voice or an informal voice, if it's sort of in writing or if you're speaking, uh, which I think what they're talking about here more than um, writing, um, then yeah, you really have to know who you're who you're talking to. And if you're in a professional context, I mean, you imagine if you went to your doctor and you're in there in the in the, in the operating room and he starts dropping f bombs, <laughs> you'd be like, "Get me out of here, man!" Right? Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. So pick it. Let's pick another one. Okay. Um, people believe you more if they sit in the evidence. What does that even mean? Um, okay. Well, read read that read that first paragraph there. A research study by Yaley, Eric Johnson, and Lisa Zaval looked into the belief into global warming and its relation to the current local weather. So I guess they're saying um, that basically, if you live in a cold climate, you're less likely to believe in global warming. Right, right. So if you're if you're if you're living in an area that has had like a series of heat waves, record setting temperatures, mm-hmm. you'd be like, oh yeah, you know, you totally would buy into it, and 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 vice versa. If it's if it's just been cold all the time, you're going to be like, I don't know about this whole global warming thing. I think okay, that's so true. I think one thing worth mentioning is that this whole post is about um, getting people to convert to become customers and sell them stuff. So one of the things they say at the end of that little section there is, if you want people to buy your message. Ask for the sale in the situation that supports your claims. Online, use imagery or other visual material to build the stage for your story. Right, right. Hey, pick out, here's a good one. Read this one. The balanced arguments are more persuasive. Um, okay, well, tell us about it. Why, why is that good? Well, you read, do the, read the intro. Huh? Yeah, man, you do good intros. Okay, if what you are doing inspires or can inspire criticism, resist the instinct to paper over weakness. We fear undermining our point of view by talking about weakness. But actually, it would help our case, huh? <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it's just it's about honesty, you know. If you say, well, you know, yeah, this isn't this could be better, or, or you know, this other uh, you know offering has some advantages, but this is why you want to go with us. This hmm. is why we're better in the end, because if it's obvious that you're papering papering over weaknesses, then yeah. They're gonna. People are gonna think that you're hiding from them bigger problems, right? So, like, so for example, this an example of this would be with Plugio when I'm trying to sell it, and if if I'm you know if someone's comparing it to Hootsuite or something, I could say, well, you know, the truth is Hootsuite do have a team of like twenty people and ten million invested in it, but the truth is that Plugio is a little bit better for these things that Hootsuite isn't so good as. Yeah, yeah. They actually say it perfectly in this little passage. They say, people are not idiots and they can think. If you don't mention the other side of the coin in your arguments, people are less likely to believe you. So I think it pretty much says it. Yeah. Yeah, I can agree with that. Um, here's a good one. Actually, this was interesting. Uh, get people to agree with you first. What? If you want people to buy into your message, start with something they can agree with. So once you get people nodding with you... <laughs> Then yeah. you're 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 moving in the right direction. It kind of reminded me of something I read a few years ago. It's a scientific, one of these scientific studies that I love to uh, reference. And it was about how, like, let's say that you're of one political persuasion, and you're trying to in 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 your you might be actually trying to make a point that goes against what people who of that political persuasion might believe if they believe that you are one of them and you're like, Oh yeah. You know, let's say you're a conservative, you you're talking to a conservative crowd and you're conservative and you, and you say, 
hey, you know, listen, and you, you know, this whole thing about global warming, there is, we, we need to, we need to actually take it seriously because they're already sort of in agreement with you in mm-hmm. general because they think that you think like them. And if you bring up the point that, you know, you, you start, you start going the other direction, you can get, the people are much more receptive. But if you came in and they knew that you were a liberal, the conservative base would completely ignore you. You would have almost no chance of convincing anybody of anything. And vice versa, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're, a, if you're a liberal talking to a liberal crowd and you said, listen, this idea of, you know, whatever, um, healthcare or something, we, there's some problems with it and we need to rethink, they might actually listen to you. Well, I like the Sullivan nod, number 15, called the Sullivan nod, which is a little bit similar. And okay. I'll, read the, I'll read the clip. Um, invented by restaurant consultant Jim Sullivan, the Sullivan nod involves reciting a list of options, but just inclining your head slightly when you reach the choice you'd like the buyer to make. The nod has to be very subtle, but perceptible, and works best in lists of no more than five items. According to Jim Sullivan, it's successful up to 60% of the time. So whenever a servers suggest a beverage, have them smile slowly, nod their heads up and down as they make the suggestion. Body language is powerful, and research shows that over 60% of the time, the guests will nod right back and take your suggestions. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, they're, they're, and then in the article, they're saying, um, I bet you could use that in an online sales video when talking about plans or packages. Do the nod <laughs> on the right, one you want right. them to buy. <laughs> well, so, in, a way, in a way, that's like the 37 signals kind of highlighting the box and, you know, and saying the most, uh, what this most popular. Right. I, you know, exactly. And, I think my favorite of all of this, though, is number 17. 87% of people believe everything if there's a percentage in it. <laughs> right. That's what I've heard anyway. That's <laughs> great. So, uh, yeah. Um, well, we'll put a link to this on the, on the, um, in the, in the notes because I think it's a, there's some good, good things to think about. So, um, next. Hype cycles. Hype cycles. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, I was reading an article in uh, Wired about Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. You know, because Bitcoin kind of came out of nowhere. A, an individual, a single Bitcoin was worth like 0.03 cents or something like that. And it got up as high as like $27 for a single Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And then it crashed down because a couple of these Bitcoin exchanges got hacked. And and uh, then there was like, there was some negative press about it. And um, so anyway, the in the article, they, they reference... Um, Gartner, you know, Gartner's group, the, they like Forrester, they do like these, um, they're like a research company. Yeah. And they have something called the uh, Gartner hype cycle. And there are like, there are five points on this hype cycle, which is the first is the technology trigger. The second, which kind of gets it started, the second is peak of inflated expectations. So it goes really high. So that's when like um, Bitcoin went up to, you know, $27. And then it go, and then after a series of like disappointments, it, it falls into the trough of disillusionment. <laughs> and then it starts to slowly climb out of that, and it starts climbing up the slope of enlightenment as people start to understand that there is actually value in this technology. And finally, it's, it, it reaches what's uh, termed the plateau of productivity. So you can almost look at the internet that way, right? There, there was a technology trigger, let's call it Netscapes, yeah, um, IPO and and uh, and its introduction of the of Netscape Navigator, the peak of inflated expectations hit, you know, its uh, zenith in what like two thousand somewhere early two thousand, 
Yeah. So the so the bubble happened, and and basically the technology and the all, all of the infrastructure wasn't there to back up the promise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, or at least there wasn't enough productivity yet to to see return on all the investment that went into it because so much money was plowed into all of this stuff. But there wasn't a way. There wasn't enough there yet to realize a return on all that because I remember in ninety nine, ninety eight. But basically, it was 98, even I guess 97, but mostly 98. I, a lot of people were emailing me, or actually, before I just shouldn't say email, people were calling me because people weren't emailing that much at that time. And they would be, and they knew that, you know, I wrote software and I was doing a, you know, my own sort of startup company. And they, they would ask me, so what do you think about this internet thing, man? What do you think about all these, these internet companies? And I just remember reading so many of these, um, of in, so many different interviews with the founders of these companies, and they're like, "Well, we're going to be profitable by third quarter of '99 or first quarter 2000 or something along those lines." And I remember saying to our people, "I said, you know, once we hit the point where most of these companies claim they're going to be profitable and they're not profitable, then that's when it's really going to crash." Mm. And as as it happens, that's actually pretty much what happened, right? You know, all of a sudden, people didn't hit their numbers. Companies didn't hit their numbers. And there were a lot of funny accounting. A lot of these startups were, were exchanging services and putting things on the books as revenue and all this kind of stuff that was happening. But, um, yeah, the, there was all this expectation. All this money went into it, but it was just not clear how, how the money was going to get a return on it. So the trough of disillusionment, I guess that's the big crash, right? Yeah, so let's say 2001, 2002, 2003. That's when people were really depressed about the internet. They, you know, it was like, oh, it was, it was, it was, it was conventional wisdom. It was, it was only common sense that the internet was a flash in the pan. It was just a big, you know, scam in a way, a big uh, disappointment, and and no serious businesses were going to work on the internet. Um, and then I think when the whole Web 2.0 meme started up, and I would say that was in 2004. Was that, was that um, alongside the lean startup? No, lean startup didn't start. It didn't uh, come out. I don't think until you'd double check on that. But I, I, I don't remember hearing much about that until like two thousand nine, hmm. eight, a few okay. years, three or four years ago. I don't think that. I don't think the street. I don't think. Um, so what's like a Steve Blank in the Four Steps to the Epiphany and Eric Reese's Lean Startup and, and Lean Methodology. I don't think all that stuff really happened until 2009, 2008, mm. the earliest. Um, but you know, back in 2004, when the first Web 2.0 conference came up, and, and I remember the first thing I read that made me think that that the web was going to come back alive was when this company called Oddpost built like a a um, a web-based version of Outlook, and so yeah. it was bought by Yahoo for like twenty million or something like that. Do you remember that? No, it was on. It was on the. I think it was the magazine was Business Two Point Oh, and I remember reading it when I was sitting and when Sandy was in labor <laughs> with our first <laughs> with Colby, their first right. job. So this is two thousand. This is September twenty third, I guess twenty <laughs> second. You know, of course. When your wife goes in labor, you basically spend like a day sitting around doing nothing in the <laughs> in the hotel room. I mean, in that hotel, in the um, the uh, hospital room, right? Yeah. I mean, there's not a whole lot to do. I mean, you make occasional phone calls to the parents or in laws and t- keep them updated on what's going on. But most of the time, you're just kind of sitting there chatting with her, 
you know, just, I don't know, trying to stay out of the way of the nurses. And so I remember reading this, uh, this article thinking, you know, uh oh, I was like, it's, it's, it's about to come up. It's, it, it, we're going to have a second run at this thing. And uh, sure enough, that's, that's actually what happened. It was right in 2004. And that's when I started working on, um, well, a couple of different internet ideas and then eventually became Prezo. But uh, yeah, that was the slope of enlightenment. And then, then we, had, we had another crash. It wasn't an internet crash. It was just an overall global market crash that, that crashed in 2008, early 2009. That didn't have anything to do with the, the internet cycle. But the slope of enlightenment just kind of kept going right through that. And now I think we're kind of at a plateau of productivity where, you know, a lot of businesses make money. A lot of people use the web for a lot of different, you know, reasons than, that, are, that drastically increase efficiency and, and, and uh, productivity and things like that. I don't think there's any argument about that. But, you know, I think it's fractal, something that you and I talk about. It's like you have m- mini bubbles, like the funding of the, 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 the Silicon Valley funding of all of these the web startups. I think we're in a mini bubble. Well, I mean, TechCrunch just um, put out an article. Uh, Josh Kopelman uh, said, I think 2012 will look more like 2008 than 2011. So they're sort of predicting on TechCrunch anyway, I'll just ping you that link, that um, we have some sort of, some sort of bubble. Basically, it, it just, it's going to be harder to get money, you know, harder to get money from VCs. Not that this makes any difference to us because, you know, we, of the bootstrapping approach that we take. But uh, I guess it may, may make a difference to the landscape. That's actually one great thing about bootstrapping and just going for profitability the way that we do. It doesn't really make that much of a difference what's happening in, this, in, the, in the VC space. Yeah, you know, well, a couple things about that. Um, you know, because most of the stuff is about, they're usually talking about consumer startups. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, these are the kind of things that are being funded that all the money's chasing are generally, I think are generally, they're not things they're going to, charge a lot of money they're, they're like things with unproven business models or social networks there are all these kinds of different things that that are gonna you know go to consumer audience and um i think those things are really in trouble because they don't have anything figured out and i think it was a startup genome project i think it was called where they did a big analysis on like all these startups and they discovered that the the startups that tended to have the highest degree of failure were the ones that took that spent bad money, which is that they start spending a lot of money before they had figured out how to make a consistent profit, mm-hmm. you know, based on their level of, of expenditure. And that's what happens with a lot of these companies. They, they go and they have a vague idea of how they can make money and they hire a bunch of people and they, you know, get a cool office and they start writing some cool, interesting software and, you know, whatever, but they don't really have a way they're going to make money. So I, I think for companies that are that are bootstrapping, that are actually going towards profitability, that aren't raising money, that are that are keeping. I mean, bootstrapping you consider as like ultra lean startup, right? You're not taking any money, mm-hmm. and you actually might do better when it crashes because it removes all the noise and all the froth and and all of the distraction from all these other startups out of the way. Well, that's a, that's an interesting point. And um, what were they saying that? If you look back at companies that were funded in 2008, so they're talking about this same kind of concept of like what, you know, who's made it through since then, since that bad, those bad times. Um, Airbnb was funded, Groupon was funded, and NGMOCO. What's that? Nugmo. I have never heard of that. <laughs> Nugmoco. <laughs> yeah, Apparently they made it successful. through. They made it through. Woohoo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, Airbnb, I think, and uh, Groupon are kind of the interesting ones there, yeah. 
Yeah, and I think of something like Dropbox, right? Oh, they okay. started in the bad. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of examples. Um, I, you know, I mean, there's always going to be exceptions and everything, but um, at least for, 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 for bootstrap startups, it will make that make a difference. I mean, but what will make a difference is if the overall economy is really bad. I mean, that makes it difficult on everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, 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 you know, if, if, if people aren't spending money, it's, it's hard to, it's just, it's just, it, it makes it harder to build a business. So I don't know. You, you, it's, it's almost like, I mean, I don't know. I guess you, I could see arguments either way, but you'd like it to be a situation where it's not in the midst of a mega bubble, but you want things to be slightly on the positive going up. So people are spending some money, but I feel like we've been kind of in this ongoing bad overall sluggish recession, like economy for, you know, three going on four years now. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, it, it hasn't been, you know, I mean, it's, it's just really, I mean, what they're really talking about is just the, 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 the funding from the Valley and all, and from all these angels of all these little internet companies. That's right. really what they're talking about. The overall economy itself is sort of divorced from the reality of the overall economy. And I think it's because of that whole, you know, that idea of the, uh, it's almost like casino capitalism, which is like, you know, few people, few companies hit it really huge and everybody just gets stars in their eyes watching Zynga and Fa- Facebook and Groupon. And they think, oh, you know, I want to make billion, I'm going to make a billion dollar company like that. And in the, um, in the angels and the, VCs themselves, I mean, that's what they're shooting for too, right? They want to have investments and things like that. They want to hit home runs. That's how they really make their money. So, did you hear that? Um, mm-hmm. That this, I don't know this, if this is it's not tech related, but it was. I just thought it was interesting that I think it's Adidas or possibly Nike are, are looking Nike. into Nike are, lo- are looking into <laughs> Adidas. Adidas. Basically creating a train. Well, what do you call them in states? Is it trainers or runners? Basically, you know, typical shoes that a teenager would wear. What do you call them? Tennis uh, shoes? Or I would like running shoes or like, Jor- uh, like Jordan Airs, those kind of things. What do you call them? Well, those would be basketball shoes. Uh, well, you know, uh, like, okay, fashionable running shoes, let's say. Sure. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? The, the, the kind of high, high, That's funny. Uh, yeah, yeah. expensive yeah. shoes that you buy for like between 50 and Adidas and Nike. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> Adidas and Nike. That's what we say in England anyway. Oh, really? So, that, what you, that really what you say? Yeah. Adidas and Nike. Oh, I thought it was just uh, your own personalized version. <laughs> <laughs> why, why would I personalize those words? Anyway. I don't know. You personalize a lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, so in it, that they want to put, um, to build a market in India, but obviously they can't afford these high prices. So what they're doing is they're trying to create a runner for a dollar per pair. And they, and so in, the, in, in our society, we have this, uh, you know, $50 to $75 but because they can't make that they can't make that happen in india they're going right we want to go for just absolutely huge scale and bring it down to a dollar per pair really yeah now i've forgotten why i brought this up it was it was related to your last comment but um i just thought it was interesting oh, a dollar i don't it seems to me that it would, that the material that the material itself would cost a lot more than a dollar the transporting the shoes the I don't know, a dollar? I mean, how can you even make it, achieve that cheaply? I don't know, so I guess they're going to make it. 
Well, they in, want they could, yeah, they're going to make it in India with, I guess, Indian ingredients and <laughs> um, <laughs> Indian rubber and Indian. Why? Uh, why did I bring rubber. that up? What were you talking about before? I wasn't talking about that. <laughs> no, but you were talking about something, and somehow it made me made me think of companies um, reapproaching reapproaching economics, and I thought this was an know. example of it. Oh, I don't know. Okay, God, got off tangent. It doesn't have to be connection on texting, right? I'm pretty tired at this stage. <laughs> yeah, what time is it? Uh, well, it's six forty-eight here, but um, we've we've just had a lot on, and we we still haven't got over the jet lag scenario. Oh, really? Um, so, how many yeah. days have you been there now? Three. Uh, yeah, about three days at this stage. I mean, how long does it take you to recover when you fly over? I don't know, but uh, I also had a little bit of a party with my friends. So, that sounds uh, more like the culprit than <laughs> yeah. stay up drinking, get you hungover. Is that what you're saying? Uh, pr- probably, yeah. So, okay, now what, what's, what's this whole drinking thing? I thought you weren't supposed to drink anymore because of your various... I only see my friends in the UK once every three years. So, so Actually, you... I, did, I, did I tell you that... Um, just before I came over, I had tests done with Kaiser Permanente, uh-huh. um, but basically medical tests. Right. So the last time I got tested was, like, I don't know, like a year ago or something when I found out about the diabetes. So all, all the stuff that I've been doing, basically a lot of juice, uh, a lot of vegetables move completely off meat. So all of my numbers are looking really, really good. Um, the doctor's very happy with it. Um, my My diabetes numbers have got to the point where he said... Basically, you don't need diabetes drugs anymore. That's so, amazing. Yeah, it's pretty good, yeah. And because it wasn't like you were you were only semi-disciplined with it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you were kind of, you'd go hardcore for two or three weeks and you'd kind of slide off it and kind of sort of half do it. Yeah, I've, I've mainly, do half do it would be a good way of putting it. I mean, basically, I've just been drinking at least one or two vegetable juices a day and then having another meal and... So, so, so two in replacement for a meal. Yeah, pretty much. That's, that's where it's been working. So I guess it's like, um, like one of those slim fast things, but rather than using their weird fake concoction, I've just been using vegetable juice. Yeah. No, what's your, which, what's your real meal, dinner or breakfast? Whatever. It's usually so, it's usually socially oriented. So I just want, when I'm, when I'm out with my wife or family or friends, I like to, have a social meal. But on a regular day of the week, I mean, you know, Monday through Friday, you're not going out. I guess usually. dinner, having dinner mainly. So yeah, so you have like a real dinner. So, so breakfast and lunch is just juice. Yeah. Are you hungry during the day? Or are you actually... No, not to- at all. And, but I'm, I'm just also focusing more on eating just generally fresh vegetables and that type of thing. Now, have you dropped weight too? Um, yeah, I, I mean, since, since back then, I've dropped, I guess, 25 pounds. But uh, for a long time now, I've just stuck at that weight, you know. Right, right. Yeah. And how are your energy levels? Pretty good. Now, do you do you not eat any meat? Or no, is I it do. Just- I do eat some. I mean, just I just just generally, my general concept is to eat is to focus on eating more vegetables, and that is basically. And so <laughs> the during be- a week, the during beginning a week, at the end of it. So I'm not eat, sure this is eat, that interesting. Will you eat meat like once or twice during for dinner during the week? Is that it, or not? Or do you not yeah, eat so it at all? I, I, I think it's like that. Yeah, probably like once or twice. Yeah. Okay, so, okay, so it's, it's not you're, you're not totally vegan. You're just sort of, you know, low meat consumption. I would say eighty percent vegetable, twenty percent. Eighty percent vegetables. Yeah, yeah. And do you, were you normally someone who liked vegetables? Because for me, it'd be tough because I'm not a big vegetable guy. No, I I wasn't. I wasn't. And and what made the difference was um, 
When I very first started, I did 10 days on nothing but juice. That changed my perspective about vegetables. I don't think it, it, it's incredibly hard to do 10 days on just juice, but it just changes your perspective. Like all of a sudden, other food seemed so heavy and vegetables seem to take on a really, I don't know, a very significant meaning. I, it just changed your perspective. I would recommend it to anyone. I know what? That's a feeling every time... You know, we eat like hamburgers because I don't eat hamburgers much, but like we're so we're driving back from Vegas yesterday and and, uh, you know, we stop off. We had to grab lunch with the kids and um, Colby was clamoring for Bob's big boy. <laughs> which oh, yeah. Never, he, he's never had, but he, he he just wanted to go there. So we're like, all right, fine. You know, and I ended up eating a hamburger and those hamburgers are ginormous. Yeah. And I only ate about half of one. And I felt ill the rest of the day. I was just like, even it was eight, even as late to eight or nine o'clock at night. I was just like, oh man, it it makes me not like want to eat red meat for <laughs> quite a while. I don't know. I've noticed that the older I get, the more sensitive I am to the food I eat. So like when I was in my early mid twenties, I mean, I could eat anything. I could eat an extra large pizza by myself at midnight, no problem, and not put on a pound. Yeah, nothing. Um. And, you know, not only can I not do that anymore, but that starts to change how much you can eat, like how, how quickly you put on weight if you don't, if you eat a lot of food, your metabolism slowing down. But like, I become much more sensitive to like the kind of, um, the kind of food I eat. Like in my late twenties, all of a sudden I couldn't eat McDonald's. I fight McDonald's or fast food. You know, not that I eat very much, but like, you know, if you, on a random occasion, you'd grab, you'd stop by and all of a sudden you'd feel kind of ill the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. But when I was younger, I mean, I would eat, I would eat on the way to like my high school basketball game. I would eat like four hamburgers, a chocolate shake <laughs> and large fries while driving on the way. I'd be walking to the locker room, finishing it up <laughs> as I'm putting on my uniform. Not a problem. Well, I guess the, bo- the body's just much better at turning that into nutrients somehow. It, it like yeah, does some body, kind of have this huge magic. margin of error. And now yeah. I've noticed that like I can't even eat like spicy um, uh, salsa. Like if I go to like Chipotle or one of these yeah. like uh, Mexican just, restaurants, yeah. And I I'll have a stomachache. I'll feel kind of ill and have heartburn the rest of the day. Even if I eat like, even if I have a little bit of hot of hot salsa, <laughs> it sucks. You, I mean, I you, I know you probably never do it, but you should try doing just ten days of just juice. Just, I, I could it, never do that. I, I'm it not is a, a revelation. Yeah, I, I could never do it. I'm I'm a kind of a picky eater. I would never, I would never be able to do that. But what I could do is I could just dial down the meat. I don't eat a lot of meat anyway. The only, all I really eat is chicken. Yeah, but turkey. if you just swap it out for carbs or rice or something, then that's not... I could know. do that, but I couldn't just eat like, you know, a big plate of vegetables. That would... <laughs> my capacity, unfortunately. But um, I could... Uh, I, get, I mean, I don't... Like I said, I don't eat a ton of... I don't eat a ton of meat. And what I do eat is mostly just chicken. Even turkey. Even if like we have like bacon or even if... My, even if saying meat like uh, meat spaghetti or meatball spaghetti, it's like turkey, not red meat. Mm-hmm. But anyway, well, anyway, it's good to hear. I'm really happy to hear that your um, that your uh, numbers are are down or better. Yeah, That's yeah, news. Much better. Yeah, 40, 40 off the cholesterol, uh, forty points off the cholesterol, and um, my blood sugar went down to basically only slightly above a normal person's. And now you just gotta be careful that when you go to Ireland, you don't just drink it up for like a month. Yeah. Oh, I won't. I won't. Yeah, because the the land and the, and the pub land, right? Is that whatever you do? Is just go to the pub every night. <laughs> I mean, how are you going to go to a pub every night with your friends and not drink? 
Yeah, no, I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Well, one thing, you, you predict that it was going to be hard for me to work while I was on vacation, and you were absolutely right. <laughs> it's, it, it doesn't, it's not so easy. Well, you know, because um, I'm sure Georgie's like, hey, let's go do this today, or let's do that, or you have friends stop by, like, hey, you know, we're all going to go here tomorrow. And you're like, uh... <laughs> talking about that, she's actually sitting sitting behind me right now, tapping her fingers. Yeah, I'm sure she's ready to have dinner. <laughs> Yeah, so why don't we wrap it up then? That sounds like a good stopping point. Yeah. So um, I guess we'll try and uh, we'll try and record another show next weekend or something, Sunday or Monday. Right, let's go for it. All right, that's a wrap. We're out.